Good evening and welcome to this, the podcast that reads the web so you don't have to. My name is Mike, I'll be your host. Today for you we've got hacks, the NSA, US legislation, we've even got cats in this episode. This is our cybersecurity episode, so I hope that all sounds interesting to you because this is what you're listening to. Let's get started. We're going to start things off this week with a great feature piece from Russell Brandom over at TheVerge.com. This is his Anatomy of a Hack. In the early morning hours of October 21st, 2014, Partap Davis lost $3,000. He had gone to sleep just after 2 a.m. in his Albuquerque, New Mexico home after a late night playing World of Tanks. While he slept, an attacker undid every online security protection he set up. By the time he woke up, most of his online life had been compromised. Two email accounts, his phone, his Twitter, his two-factor authenticator, and most importantly, his Bitcoin wallets. Davis was careful when it came to digital security. He chose strong passwords and didn't click on bogus links. He used two-factor authentication with Gmail, so when he logged in from a new computer, he had to type in six digits that were texted to his phone just to make sure it was him. He had made some money with the rise of Bitcoin and held onto the Bitcoin in three protected wallets, managed by Coinbase, Bitstamp, and BTCE. He also used two-factor with Coinbase and BTCE accounts. Anytime he wanted to access them, he had to verify the login with Authy, a two-factor authenticator app on his phone. Other than the Bitcoin, Davis wasn't that different from the average web user. He makes his living coding, splitting time between building video education software and a patchwork of other jobs. On the weekends, he snowboards, exploring the slopes around Los Alamos. This is his 10th year in Albuquerque. Last year, he turned 40. After the hack, Davis spent weeks tracking down exactly how it had happened piecing together a picture from access logs and reluctant customer service reps. Along the way, he reached out to The Verge, and we added a few more pieces to the puzzle. We still don't know everything, in particular we don't know who did it, but we know enough to say how they did it, and the points of failure sketch out a map of the most glaring vulnerabilities of our digital lives. It started with Davis's email. When he was first setting up an email account, Davis found that partap at gmail.com was taken, so he chose a mail.com address instead setting up partap at mail.com to forward to a less memorably named Gmail address. Sometime after 2 a.m. on October 21st, that link was broken. Someone broke into Davis's mail.com account and stopped the forwarding. Suddenly, there was a new phone number attached to the account, a burner Android device registered in Florida. There was a new backup email, too, swagger at mailinator.com, which is still the closest thing we have to the attacker's name. For simplicity's sake, we'll call her Eve. How did Eve get in? We can't say for sure, but it's likely that she used a script to target a weakness in Mail.com's password reset page. We know such a script existed. For months, users on the site HackForum had been selling access to a script that reset specific account passwords on Mail.com. It was an old exploit by the time Davis was targeted, and the going rate was $5 per account. It's unclear how the exploit worked and whether it has been closed in the months since, but it did exactly what Eve needed. Without any authentication, she was able to reset Davis's password to a string of characters that only she knew. Eve's next step was to take over Partap's phone number. She didn't have his AT&T password, but she just pretended to have forgotten it, and att.com sent along a secure link to partap at mail.com to reset it. Once inside the account, she talked a customer service rep into forwarding his calls to her Long Beach number. Strictly speaking, there are supposed to be more safeguards required to set up call forwarding, and it's supposed to take more than a working email address to push it through. But faced with an angry client, customer service reps will often give way, putting user satisfaction over the colder virtues of security. Once forwarding was set up, all of Davis's voice calls belonged to Eve. Davis still got texts and emails, but every call was routed straight to the attacker. Davis didn't realize what had happened until two days later, when his boss complained that Davis wasn't picking up the phone. Next, Eve set her sights on Davis's Google account. Experts will tell you that two-factor authentication is the best protection against attacks. A hacker might get your password, or a mugger might steal your phone, 
but it's hard to manage both at once. As long as the phone is a physical object, that system works. But people replace their phones all the time, and they expect to be able to replace their services, too. Accounts have to be reset 24 hours a day, and two-factor services end up looking like just one more account to crack. Davis hadn't set up Google's Authenticator app, the more secure option, but he had two-factor authentication enabled. Google texted him a confirmation code every time he logged in from a new computer. Call forwarding didn't pass along Davis's text, but Eve had a back door. Thanks to Google's accessibility functions, she could ask for the confirmation code to be read out loud over the phone. Authy should have been harder to break. It's an app, like Authenticator, and it never left Davis's phone. But Eve simply reset the app on her phone using a mail.com address and a new confirmation code, again sent by a voice call. A few minutes after 3 a.m., the Authy account moved under Eve's control. It was the same trick that had fooled Google. As long as she had Davis's email and phone, two-factor couldn't tell the difference between them. At this point, Eve had more control over Davis's online life than he did. Aside from texting, all digital roads now led to Eve. At 3.19 a.m., Eve reset Davis's Coinbase account, using Authy and his Mail.com address. At 3.55 a.m., she transferred the full balance, worth roughly $3,600 at the time, to a burner account she controlled. From there, she made three withdrawals, one 30 minutes after the account was opened, then another 20 minutes later, and another five minutes after that. After that, the money disappeared into a nest of dummy accounts designed to cover her tracks. Less than 90 minutes after his Mail.com account was first compromised, Davis's money was gone for good. Authy might have known something was up. The service keeps an eye out for fishy behavior, and while they're cagey about what they monitor, it seems likely that an account reset to an out-of-state number in the middle of the night would have raised at least a few red flags. But the number wasn't from a known fraud center like Russia or Ukraine, even if Eve might have been. It would have seemed even more suspicious when Eve logged into Coinbase from the Canadian IP. Could they have stopped her then? Modern security systems like Google's reCAPTCHA often work this way, adding together small indicators until there's enough evidence to freeze an account. But Coinbase and Authy each only saw half the picture, and neither had enough to justify freezing Partap's account. When Davis woke up, the first thing he noticed was that his Gmail had mysteriously logged out. The password had changed, and he couldn't log back in. Once he was back in the account, he saw how deep the damage went. There were reset emails from each account sketching out a map of the damage. When he finally got into his Coinbase account, he found it empty. Eve had made off with 10 Bitcoin, worth more than $3,000 at the time. It took hours on the phone with customer service reps and a faxed copy of his driver's license before he could convince them that he was the real Partap Davis. What about the other two wallets? There was $2,500 worth of Bitcoin in them with no advertised protections that the Coinbase wallet didn't have. But when Davis checked, both accounts were still intact. BTCE had put a 48-hour hold on the account after a password change, giving him time to prove his identity and recover the account. Bitstamp had an even simpler protection. When Eve emailed to reset Davis's authentication token, they had asked for an image of his driver's license. Despite all Eve's access, it was one thing she didn't have. Davis's last $2,500 worth of Bitcoin was safe. It's been two months now since the attack, and Davis has settled back into his life. The last trace of the intrusion is Davis's Twitter account, which stayed hacked for weeks after the other accounts. At Partap is a short handle, which makes it valuable, so Eve held onto it, putting in a new picture and erasing any trace of Davis. A few days after the attack, she posted a screenshot of a hacked Xfinity account, tagging another handle. The account didn't belong to Davis, but it belonged to someone. She had moved on to the next target and was using At Partap as a disposable accessory to her next theft, like a stolen getaway car. So who was behind the attack? Davis has spent weeks looking for her now, whole afternoons wasted on the phone with customer service reps, but he hasn't gotten any closer. According to account login records, Eve's computer was piping in from a block of IP addresses in Canada, but she may have used Tor or a VPN service to cover her tracks. Her phone number belonged to an Android device in Long Beach, California, but that phone was most likely a burner. 
There are only a few tracks to follow, and each one peters out fast. Wherever she is, Eve got away with it. Why did she choose Partap Davis? She knew about the wallets up front, we can assume. Why else would she have spent so much time digging through the accounts? She started at the Mail.com account, too, so we can guess that somehow Eve came across a list of Bitcoin users with Davis's email address on it. A number of leaked Coinbase customer lists are floating around the internet, although I couldn't find Davis's name on any of them. Or maybe his identity came from an equipment manufacturer or a Bitcoin retailer. Leaks are commonplace these days, and most go unreported. Davis is more careful with Bitcoin these days, and he's given up on the Mail.com address. But otherwise, not much about his life has changed. Coinbase has given refunds before, but this time they declined, saying the company's security wasn't at fault. He filed a report with the FBI, but the Bureau doesn't seem interested in a single Bitcoin theft. What else is there to do? He can't stop using a phone or give up the power to reset an account. There were just so many accounts, so many ways to get in. In the security world, they call this the attack surface. The bigger the surface, the harder it is to defend. Most importantly, resetting a password is still easy, as Eve discovered over and over again. When a service finally stopped her, it wasn't an elaborate algorithm or a fancy biometric. Instead, one service was willing to make customers wait 48 hours before authorizing a new password. On a technical level, it's a simple fix, but a costly one. Companies are continuously balancing the small risk of compromise against the broad benefits of convenience. A few people may lose control of their account, but millions of others are able to keep using the service without a hitch. In the fight between security and convenience, security is simply outgunned. The article Anatomy of a Hack, a step-by-step -step account of an overnight digital heist, was written by Russell Brandom and originally published on TheVerge.com. As always, there will be a link to the article in the show notes. It's a very visually impressive feature. I encourage you to check it out for yourself. The story of Partap Davis is just one more in a long line of impressive and complex hacks that have been carried out and he's surely not the last that we'll hear about. But from a security event affecting one man, we move to one affecting thousands, perhaps millions of people. I'm speaking, of course, about the NSA. This is this week's largest featured piece from Jeremy Scahill and Josh Begley at The Intercept. This is The Great Sim Heist. American and British spies hacked into the internal computer network of the largest manufacturer of SIM cards in the world, stealing encryption keys used to protect the privacy of cell phone communications across the globe, according to top-secret documents provided to The Intercept by National Security Agency whistleblower Edward Snowden. The hack was perpetrated by a joint unit consisting of operatives from the NSA and its British counterpart, Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ. The breach, detailed in a secret 2010 GCHQ document, gave the surveillance agencies the potential to secretly monitor a large portion of the world's cellular communications, including both voice and data. The company targeted by the intelligence agencies, Gemalto, is a multinational firm incorporated in the Netherlands that makes the chips used in mobile phones and next-generation credit cards. Among its clients are AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, Sprint, and some 450 wireless network providers around the world. The company operates in 85 countries and has more than 40 manufacturing facilities. One of its three global headquarters is in Austin, Texas, and it has a large factory in Pennsylvania. In all, Gemalto produces some 2 billion SIM cards a year. Its motto is, security to be free. With these stolen encryption keys, intelligence agencies can monitor mobile communications without seeking or receiving approval from telecom companies and foreign governments. Possessing the keys also sidesteps the need to get a warrant or a wiretap, while leaving no trace on the wireless provider's network that the communications were intercepted. Bulk key theft additionally enables the intelligence agencies to unlock any previously encrypted communications they had already intercepted 
but did not yet have the ability to decrypt. As part of the covert operations against Jamalto, spies from GCHQ, with support from the NSA, mined the private communications of unwitting engineers and other company employees in multiple countries. Jamalto was totally oblivious to the penetration of its systems, and the spying on its employees. I'm disturbed, quite concerned that this has happened, Paul Beverly, a Jamalto executive vice president, told The Intercept. Quote, the most important thing for me is to understand exactly how this is done so we can take every measure to ensure that it doesn't happen again, and also to make sure that there's no impact on the telecom operators that we have served in a very trusted manner for many years. What I want to understand is what sort of ramifications it has or could have on any of our customers. He added that, the most important thing for us now is to understand the degree of the breach. Leading privacy advocates and security experts say that the theft of encryption keys from major wireless network providers is tantamount to a thief obtaining the master ring of a building superintendent who holds the keys to every apartment. Once you have the keys, decrypting traffic is trivial, says Christopher Segoyan, the principal technologist for the American Civil Liberties Union. Quote, the news of this key theft will send a shockwave through the security community. Beverly said that after being contacted by The Intercept, Jamalto's internal security team began on Wednesday to investigate how their system was penetrated and could find no trace of the hacks. When asked if the NSA or GCHQ had ever requested access to Jamalto-manufactured encryption keys, Beverly said, quote, I am totally unaware. To the best of my knowledge, no. According to one secret GCHQ slide, the British intelligence agency penetrated Jamalto's internal networks, planting malware on several computers, giving GCHQ secret access. We believe we have their entire network, the slide's author boasted about the operation against Jamalto. Additionally, the spy agency targeted unnamed cellular companies' core networks, giving it access to, quote, sales staff machines for customer information and network engineers' machines for network maps. GCHQ also claimed the ability to manipulate the billing servers of cell companies to suppress charges in an effort to conceal the spy agency's secret actions against an individual's phone. Most significantly, GCHQ also penetrated authentication servers, allowing it to decrypt data and voice communications between a targeted individual's phone and his or her telecom provider's network. A note accompanying the slide asserted that the spy agency was, quote, very happy with the data so far and was working through the vast quantity of product. The Mobile Handset Exploitation Team, or MHET, whose existence has never before been disclosed, was formed in April 2010 to target vulnerabilities in cell phones. One of its main missions was to covertly penetrate computer networks of corporations that manufacture SIM cards, as well as those of wireless network providers. The team included operatives from both GCHQ and the NSA. While the FBI and other U.S. agencies can obtain court orders compelling U.S.-based telecom companies to allow them to wiretap or intercept the communications of their customers, on the international front this type of data collection is much more challenging. Unless a foreign telecom or foreign government grants access to their citizens' data to a U.S. intelligence agency, the NSA or CIA would have to hack into the network or specifically target the user's device for a more risky, active form of surveillance that could be detected by sophisticated targets. Moreover, foreign intelligence agencies would not allow U.S. or U.K. spy agencies access to the mobile communications of their heads of state or other government officials. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable, said Gerard Shu, a member of the Dutch parliament, when told of the spy agency's actions. Shu, the intelligence spokesperson for D66, the largest opposition party in the Netherlands, told The Intercept, we don't want to have the secret services from other countries doing things like this. Shu added that he and other lawmakers will ask the Dutch government to provide an official explanation and to clarify whether the country's intelligence services were aware of the targeting of Jamalto, whose official headquarters is in Amsterdam. Last November, the Dutch government proposed an amendment to its constitution to include explicit protection for the privacy of digital communications, including those made on mobile devices. We have, in the Netherlands, a law on the activities of secret services, and hacking is not allowed, Shu said. Under Dutch law, the interior minister would have to sign off on such operations by foreign government's intelligence agencies. Quote, I don't believe that he has given his permission for these kind of actions. 
The US and British intelligence agencies pulled off the encryption key heist in great stealth, giving them the ability to intercept and decrypt communications without alerting the wireless network provider, the foreign government, or the individual user that they have been targeted. Gaining access to a database of keys is pretty much game over for cellular encryption, says Matthew Green, a cryptography specialist at the Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute. The massive key theft is, quote, bad news for phone security. Really bad news. As consumers began to adopt cellular phones en masse in the mid-1990s, there were no effective privacy protections in place. Anyone could buy a cheap device from Radio Shack capable of intercepting calls placed on mobile phones. The shift from analog to digital networks introduced basic encryption technology, though it was still crackable by tech-savvy computer science graduate students, as well as the FBI and other law enforcement agencies, using readily available equipment. Today, second-generation, or 2G, phone technology, which relies on a deeply flawed encryption system, remains the dominant platform globally, though US and European cell phone companies now use 3G, 4G, and LTE technology in urban areas. These include more secure, though not invincible, methods of encryption, and wireless carriers throughout the world are upgrading their networks to use these newer technologies. It is in the context of such growing technical challenges to data collection that intelligence agencies such as the NSA have become interested in acquiring cellular encryption keys. With old-fashioned 2G, there are other ways to work around cell phone security without those keys, says Green, the Johns Hopkins cryptographer. With newer 3G, 4G, and LTE protocols, however, the algorithms aren't as vulnerable, so getting those keys would be essential. The privacy of all mobile communications, voice calls, text messages, and internet access depends on an encrypted connection between the cell phone and the wireless carrier's network, using keys stored on the SIM, a tiny chip smaller than a postage stamp, which is inserted into the phone. All mobile communications on the phone depend on the SIM, which stores and guards the encryption keys created by companies like Gemalto. SIM cards can be used to store contacts, text messages, and other important data, like one's phone number. In some countries, SIM cards are used to transfer money. As The Intercept reported last year, having the wrong SIM card can make you the target of a drone strike. SIM cards were not invented to protect individual communications. They were designed to do something much simpler, ensure proper billing, and prevent fraud, which was pervasive in the early days of cell phones. Sagoyan compares the use of encryption keys on SIM cards to the way social security numbers are used today. Social security numbers were designed in the 1930s to track your contributions to your government pension, he says. Today, they are used as a quasi-national identity number, which was never their intended purpose. Because the SIM card wasn't created with call confidentiality in mind, the manufacturers and wireless carriers don't make a great effort to secure their supply chain. As a result, the SIM card is an extremely vulnerable component of a mobile phone. I doubt anyone is treating those things very carefully, says Green. Cell companies probably don't treat them as essential security tokens. They probably just care that nobody is defrauding their networks. The ACLU's Sagoyan adds, These keys are so valuable that it makes sense for intel agencies to go after them. As a general rule, phone companies do not manufacture SIM cards nor program them with secret encryption keys. It's cheaper and more efficient for them to outsource this sensitive step in the SIM card production process. They purchase them in bulk with the keys preloaded by other corporations. Gemalto is the largest of these SIM personalization companies. After a SIM card is manufactured, the encryption key, known as a key, spelled K-I, is burned directly onto the chip. A copy of the key is also given to the cellular provider, allowing its network to recognize an individual's phone. In order for the phone to be able to connect to the wireless carrier's network, the phone, with the help of the SIM, authenticates itself using the key that has been programmed onto the SIM. The phone conducts a secret handshake that validates that the key on the SIM matches the key held by the mobile company. Once that happens, the communications between the phone and the network are encrypted. Even if GCHQ or the NSA were to intercept the phone signals as they are transmitted through the air, the intercepted data would be a garbled mess. Decrypting it can be challenging and time-consuming. Stealing the keys, on the other hand, is beautifully simple from the intelligence agency's point of view, as the pipeline for producing and distributing SIM cards was never designed to thwart mass surveillance efforts. One of the creators of the encryption protocol that is widely used today for securing emails, Adi Shamir, 
famously asserted, quote, cryptography is typically bypassed, not penetrated. In other words, it is much easier and sneakier to open a locked door when you have the key than it is to break down the door using brute force. While the NSA and GCHQ have substantial resources dedicated to breaking encryption, it is not the only way, and certainly not always the most efficient, to get at the data they want. NSA has more mathematicians on its payroll than any other entity in the US, says the ACLU's Sogoyan, but the NSA's hackers are way busier than its mathematicians. GCHQ and the NSA could have taken any number of routes to steal SIM encryption keys and other data. They could have physically broken into a manufacturing plant, they could have broken into a wireless carrier's office, they could have bribed, blackmailed, or coerced an employee of the manufacturer or cell phone provider, but all of that comes with substantial risk of exposure. In the case of Jamalto, hackers working for GCHQ remotely penetrated the company's computer network in order to steal the keys in bulk as they were en route to the wireless network providers. SIM card personalization companies like Jamalto ship hundreds of thousands of SIM cards at a time to mobile phone operators across the world. International shipping records obtained by The Intercept show that in 2011, Jamalto shipped 450,000 smart cards from its plant in Mexico to Germany's Deutsche Telekom in just one shipment. In order for the cards to work and for the phone's communications to be secure, Jamalto also needs to provide the mobile company with a file containing the encryption keys for each of the new SIM cards. These master key files could be shipped via FedEx, DHL, UPS, or another snail mail provider. More commonly, they could be sent via email or through File Transfer Protocol, FTP, a method of sending files over the internet. The moment the master key set is generated by Jamalto or another personalization company, but before it is sent to the wireless carrier, is the most vulnerable moment for interception. The value of getting them at the point of manufacture is you can presumably get a lot of keys in one go, since SIM chips get made in big batches, says Green, the cryptographer. SIM cards get made for lots of different carriers in one facility. In Jamalto's case, GCHQ hit the jackpot as the company manufactures SIMs for hundreds of wireless network providers, including all of the leading US and many of the largest European companies. But obtaining the encryption keys while Jamalto still held them required finding a way into the company's internal systems. Top secret GCHQ documents reveal that the intelligence agencies accessed the email and Facebook accounts of engineers and other employees of major telecom corporations and SIM card manufacturers in an effort to secretly obtain information that could give them access to millions of encryption keys. They did this by utilizing the NSA's X-Keyscore program, which allowed them access to private emails hosted by the SIM card and mobile companies' servers as well as those of major tech corporations, including Yahoo and Google. In effect, GCHQ clandestinely cyber-stalked Jamalto employees, scouring their emails in an effort to find people who may have had access to the company's core networks and key-generating systems. The intelligence agency's goal was to find information that would aid in breaching Jamalto's systems, making it possible to steal large quantities of encryption keys. The agency hoped to intercept the files containing the keys as they were transmitted between Jamalto and its wireless network provider customers. GCHQ operatives identified key individuals and their positions within Jamalto and then dug into their emails. In one instance, GCHQ zeroed in on a Jamalto employee in Thailand who they observed sending PGP encrypted files, noting that if GCHQ wanted to expand its Jamalto operations, quote, he would certainly be a good place to start. They did not claim to have decrypted the employee's communications, but noted that the use of PGP could mean the contents were potentially valuable. The cyberstalking was not limited to Jamalto. GCHQ operatives wrote a script that allowed the agency to mine the private communications of employees of major telecommunications and SIM personalization companies for technical terms used in the assigning of secret keys to mobile phone customers. Employees for the SIM card manufacturers and wireless network providers were labeled as known individuals and operators targeted in a top-secret GCHQ document. According to that April 2010 document, PCS Harvesting at Scale, hackers working for GCHQ, focused on harvesting massive amounts of individual encryption keys in transit between mobile network operators and SIM card personalization centers like Jamalto. 
The spies developed a methodology for intercepting these keys as they are transferred between various network operators and SIM card providers. By that time, GCHQ had developed an automated technique with the aim of increasing the volume of keys that can be harvested. The PCS harvesting document acknowledged that in searching for information on encryption keys, GCHQ operatives would undoubtedly vacuum up, quote, a large number of unrelated items from the private communications of targeted employees. Quote, however, an analyst with good knowledge of the operators involved can perform this trawl regularly and spot the transfer of large batches of keys. The document noted that many SIM card manufacturers transferred the encryption keys to wireless network providers, quote, by email or FTP with simple encryption methods that can be broken, or occasionally with no encryption at all. To get bulk access to encryption keys, all the NSA or GCHQ needed to do was intercept emails or file transfers as they were sent over the internet, something both agencies already do millions of times per day. A footnote in the 2010 document observed that the use of, quote, strong encryption products is becoming increasingly common in transferring the keys. In its key harvesting trial operations in the first quarter of 2010, GCHQ successfully intercepted keys used by wireless network providers in Iran, Afghanistan, Yemen, India, Serbia, Iceland, and Tajikistan. But, the agency noted, its automated key harvesting system failed to produce results against Pakistani networks denoted as priority targets in a document, despite the fact that GCHQ had a store of keys from two providers in the country, Mobilink and Telenor. Quote, it is possible that these networks now use more secure methods to transfer keys, the document concluded. From December 2009 through March 2010, a month before the mobile handset exploitation team was formed, GCHQ conducted a number of trials aimed at extracting encryption keys and other personalized data for individual phones. In one two-week period, they accessed the emails of 130 people associated with wireless network providers or SIM card manufacturing and personalization. This operation produced nearly 8,000 keys matched to specific phones in 10 countries. In another two-week period, by mining just six email addresses, they produced 85,000 keys. At one point in March 2010, GCHQ intercepted nearly 100,000 keys for mobile phone users in Somalia. By June, they'd compiled 300,000. Quote, Somali providers are not on GCHQ's list of interest, the document noted. However, this was usefully shared with the NSA. The GCHQ documents only contain statistics for three months of encryption key theft in 2010. During this period, millions of keys were harvested. The documents stated explicitly that GCHQ had already created a constantly evolving, automated process for bulk harvesting of keys. They describe active operations targeting Gemalto's personalization centers across the globe, as well as other major SIM card manufacturers and the private communications of their employees. A top-secret NSA document asserted that, as of 2009, the U.S. spy agency already had the capacity to process between 12 and 22 million keys per second for later use against surveillance targets. In the future, the agency predicted it would be capable of processing more than 50 million per second. The document did not state how many keys were actually processed, just that the NSA had the technology to perform such swift bulk operations. It is impossible to know how many keys have been stolen by the NSA and GCHQ to date, but even using conservative math, the numbers are likely staggering. GCHQ assigned scores to more than 150 individual email addresses based on how often the users mentioned certain technical terms, and then intensified the mining of those individuals' accounts based on priority. The highest scoring email address was that of an employee of Chinese tech giant Huawei, which the U.S. has repeatedly accused of collaborating with Chinese intelligence. In all, GCHQ harvested the emails of employees of hardware companies that manufacture phones, such as Ericsson and Nokia, operators of mobile networks, such as MTM Iransel and Belgacom, SIM card providers, such as Bluefish and Gemalto, and employees of targeted companies who used email providers, such as Yahoo and Google. During the three-month trial, the largest number of email addresses harvested were those belonging to Huawei employees, followed by MTN Iransel. 
The third largest class of emails harvested in the trial were private Gmail accounts, presumably belonging to employees at targeted companies. The GCHQ program targeting Gemalto was called Dapino Gamma. In 2011, GCHQ launched Operation Highland Fling to mine the email accounts of Gemalto employees in France and Poland. A top-secret document on the operation stated that one of the aims was, quote, getting into French HQ of Gemalto to get into core data repositories. France, home to one of Gemalto's global headquarters, is the nerve center of the company's worldwide operations. Another goal was to intercept private communications of employees in Poland that, quote, could lead to penetration into one or more personalization centers, the factories where the encryption keys are burned onto SIM cards. As part of these operations, GCHQ operatives acquired the usernames and passwords for Facebook accounts of Gemalto targets. An internal top-secret GCHQ wiki on the program from May 2011 indicated that GCHQ was in the process of targeting more than a dozen Gemalto facilities across the globe, including in Germany, Mexico, Brazil, Canada, China, India, Italy, Russia, Sweden, Spain, Japan, and Singapore. The document also stated that GCHQ was preparing similar key theft operations against one of Gemalto's competitors, Germany-based SIM card giant Gizeka and Devriant. On January 17, 2014, President Barack Obama gave a major address on the NSA spying scandal. Quote, The bottom line is that people around the world, regardless of their nationality, should know that the United States is not spying on ordinary people who don't threaten our national security, and that we take their privacy concerns into account in our policies and procedures," he said. The monitoring of the lawful communications of employees of major international corporations shows that such statements by Obama, other U.S. officials, and British leaders, that they only intercept and monitor the communications of known or suspected criminals or terrorists, were untrue. The NSA and GCHQ view the private communications of people who work for these companies as fair game, says the ACLU's Segoyan. These people were specifically hunted and targeted by intelligence agencies, not because they did anything wrong, but because they could be used as a means to an end. There are two basic types of electronic or digital surveillance, passive and active. All intelligence agencies engage in extensive passive surveillance, which means they collect bulk data by intercepting communications sent over fiber optic cables, radio waves, or wireless devices. Intelligence agencies place high-power antennas, known as spy nests, on the top of their country's embassies and consulates, which are capable of vacuuming up data sent to or from mobile phones in the surrounding area. The joint NSA-CIA Special Collection Service is the lead entity that installs and mans these nests for the United States. An embassy situated near a parliament or government agency could easily intercept the phone calls and data transfers of the mobile phones used by foreign government officials. The U.S. Embassy in Berlin, for instance, is located a stone's throw from the Bundestag. But if the wireless carriers are using stronger encryption, which is built into modern 3G, 4G, and LTE networks, then intercepted calls and other data would be more difficult to crack, particularly in bulk. If the intelligence agency wants to actually listen to or read what is being transmitted, they would need to decrypt the encrypted data. Active surveillance is another option. This would require government agencies to jam a 3G or 4G network, forcing nearby phones onto 2G. Once forced down to the less secure 2G technology, the phone can be tricked into connecting to a fake cell tower operated by an intelligence agency. This method of surveillance, though effective, is risky as it leaves a digital trace that counter-surveillance experts from foreign governments could detect. Stealing the keys solves all of these problems. This way, intelligence agencies can safely engage in passive bulk surveillance without having to decrypt data and without leaving any trace whatsoever. Key theft enables the bulk, low-risk surveillance of encrypted communications, the ACLU's Sogoyan says. Agencies can collect all the communications and then look through them later. With the keys, they can decrypt whatever they want, whenever they want. It's like a time machine enabling the surveillance of communications that occurred before someone was even a target. Neither the NSA nor GCHQ would comment specifically on the key theft operations. 
In the past, they have argued more broadly that breaking encryption is a necessary part of tracking terrorists and other criminals. It is long-standing policy that we do not comment on intelligence matters, a GCHQ official stated in an email, adding that the agency's work is conducted within a strict legal and policy framework that ensures its activities are authorized, necessary, and proportionate with proper oversight, which is the standard response the agency has provided for previous stories published by The Intercept. The agency also said, quote, the UK's interception regime is entirely compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. The NSA declined to offer any comment. It is unlikely that GCHQ's pronouncement about the legality of its operations will be universally embraced in Europe. It is governments massively engaging in illegal activities, says Sophie Intveld, a Dutch member of the European Parliament. If you are not a government and you are a student doing this, you will end up in jail for 30 years. Veld, who chaired the European Parliament's recent inquiry into mass surveillance exposed by Snowden, told The Intercept, quote, The secret services are just behaving like cowboys. Governments are behaving like cowboys, and nobody is holding them to account. The Intercept's Laura Poitras has previously reported that in 2013, Australia's Signals Intelligence Agency, a close partner of the NSA, stole some 1.8 million encryption keys from an Indonesian wireless carrier. A few years ago, the FBI reportedly dismantled several transmitters set up by foreign intelligence agencies around the Washington, D.C. area, which could also be used to intercept cell phone communications. Russia, China, Israel, and other nations use similar technology as the NSA across the world. If those governments had the encryption keys for major U.S. cell phone companies' customers, such as those manufactured by Gemalto, mass snooping would be simple. It would mean that with a few antennas placed around Washington, D.C., the Chinese or Russian governments could sweep up and decrypt the communications of members of Congress, U.S. agency heads, reporters, lobbyists, and everyone else involved in the policymaking process, and decrypt their telephone conversations, says Sagoyan. Put a device in front of the U.N., record every bit you see going over the air, steal some keys, you have all those conversations, says Green, the Johns Hopkins cryptographer. And it's not just spy agencies that would benefit from stealing encryption keys. I can only imagine how much money you could make if you had access to the calls made around Wall Street, he adds. The breach of Gemalto's computer network by GCHQ has far-reaching global implications. The company, which brought in $2.7 billion in revenue in 2013, is a global leader in digital security, producing banking cards, mobile payment systems, two-factor authentication devices used for online security, hardware tokens used for securing buildings and offices, electronic passports, and identification cards. It provides chips to Vodafone in Europe and France's Orange, as well as EE, a joint venture in the UK between France Telecom and Deutsche Telekom. Royal KPN, the largest Dutch wireless network provider, also uses Gemalto technology. In Asia, Gemalto's chips are used by China Unicom, Japan's NTT, and Taiwan's Chunghua Telecom, as well as scores of wireless network providers throughout Africa and the Middle East. The company's security technology is used by more than 3,000 financial institutions and 80 government organizations. Among its clients are Visa, MasterCard, American Express, JP Morgan Chase, and Barclays. It also provides chips for use in luxury cars, including those made by Audi and BMW. In 2012, Gemalto won a sizable contract worth $175 million from the U.S. government to produce the covers for electronic U.S. passports, which contain chips and antennas that can be used to better authenticate travelers. As part of its contract, Gemalto provides the personalization and software for the microchips implanted in the passports. The U.S. represents Gemalto's single largest market, accounting for some 15% of its total business. This raises the question of whether GCHQ, which was able to bypass encryption on mobile networks, has the ability to access private data protected by other Gemalto products created for banks and governments. As smartphones become smarter, they are increasingly replacing credit cards and cash as a means of paying for goods and services. When Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile formed an alliance in 2010 to jointly build an electronic pay system to challenge Google Wallet and Apple Pay, they purchased Gemalto's technology for their program known as SoftCard. Until July 2014, it previously went by the unfortunate name of ISIS Mobile Wallet.
Whether data relating to that and other Jamalto security products has been compromised by GCHQ and the NSA is unclear. Both intelligence agencies declined to answer any specific questions for this story. Privacy advocates and security experts say it would take billions of dollars, significant political pressure, and several years to fix the fundamental security flaws in the current mobile phone system that NSA, GCHQ, and other intelligence agencies regularly exploit. A current gaping hole in the protection of mobile communications is that cell phones and wireless network providers do not support the use of perfect forward secrecy, PFS, a form of encryption designed to limit the damage caused by theft or disclosure of encryption keys. PFS, which is now built into modern web browsers and used by sites like Google and Twitter, works by generating unique encryption keys for each communication or message which are then discarded. Rather than using the same encryption key to protect years' worth of data as the permanent keys on SIM cards can, a new key might be generated each minute, hour, or day and then promptly destroyed. Because cell phone communications do not utilize PFS, if an intelligence agency has been passively intercepting someone's communications for a year and later acquires the permanent encryption key, it can go back and decrypt all of those communications. If mobile phone networks were using PFS, that would not be possible, even if the permanent keys were later stolen. The only effective way for individuals to protect themselves from key theft-enabled surveillance is to use secure communication software, rather than relying on SIM card-based security. Secure software includes email and other apps that use Transport Layer Security, TLS, the mechanism underlying the secure HTTPS web protocol. The email clients included with Android phones and iPhones support TLS, as do large email providers like Yahoo and Google. Apps like TextSecure and SilentText are secure alternatives to SMS messages, while Signal, RedPhone, and SilentPhone encrypt voice calls. Governments may still be able to intercept communications, but reading or listening to them would require hacking a specific handset, obtaining internal data from an email provider, or installing a bug in a room to record the conversations. We need to stop assuming that the phone companies will provide us with a secure method of making calls or exchanging text messages, says Segoyan. The article, The Great Sim Heist, How Spies Stole the Keys to the Encryption Castle, was written by Jeremy Scahill and Josh Begley, and originally published on The Intercept on February 19th, 2015. Additional reporting, contribution, and assistance by Andrew Fishman, Ryan Gallagher, Sheila McNeil, Morgan Marquis-Boire, Aline Brown, Margot Williams, Ryan Devereaux, Andrea Jones, and Aaron O'Rourke. There will be a link in the show notes to the article itself at firstlook.org slash The Intercept. It's one of its biggest feature pieces, and it's quite impressive. There's a lot more visual data for you to pour over in the article itself. Check it out. Always stellar reporting from the people over at The Intercept. Really important stuff. I know it can be lengthy and a little jargony and technical. I hope you stuck with us and that that wasn't too much for you and that it was uh, a little bit more accessible. All right, uh, since we made it through that big feature piece, we're going to reward you with that story about the cat that I teased at the top of the show. It's really quite fun. I don't want to give it too much of an intro, um, so we're just going to get right into it. This is a piece from Andy Greenberg over at Wired.com. Late last month, a Siamese cat named Coco went wandering in his suburban Washington, D.C. neighborhood. He spent three hours exploring nearby backyards. He killed a mouse, whose carcass he thoughtfully brought home to his octogenarian owner, Nancy. And while he was out, Coco mapped dozens of his neighbors' Wi-Fi networks, identifying four routers that used an old, easily broken form of encryption, and another four that were left entirely unprotected. Unbeknownst to Coco, he'd been fitted with a collar created by Nancy's granddaughter's husband, security researcher Gene Bransfield. And Bransfield had built into that collar a SparkCore chip, 
loaded with his custom-coded firmware, a Wi-Fi card, a tiny GPS module, and a battery. Everything necessary to map all the networks in the neighborhood that would be vulnerable to any intruder or Wi-Fi mooch with, at most, some simple crypto-cracking tools. In the 1980s, hackers used a technique called war dialing, cycling through numbers with their modems to find unprotected computers far across the internet. The advent of Wi-Fi brought war driving, putting an antenna in a car and cruising a city to suss out weak and unprotected Wi-Fi networks. This weekend at the DEF CON Hacker Conference in Las Vegas, Bransfield will debut the next logical step, the War Kitty Collar, a device he built for less than $100 that turns any outdoor cat into a Wi-Fi-sniffing hacker accomplice. Despite the title of his DEF CON talk, How to Weaponize Your Pets, Bransfield admits War Kitty doesn't represent a substantial security threat. Rather, it's the sort of goofy hack designed to entertain the con's hacker audience. Still, he was surprised by just how many networks tracked by his data-collecting cat used WEP, a form of wireless encryption known for more than 10 years to be easily broken. My intent was not to show people where to get free Wi-Fi. I put some technology on a cat and let it roam around because the idea amused me, says Bransfield, who works for the security consultancy Tenacity. Quote, but the result of this cat research was that there were a lot more open and WEP encrypted hotspots out there than there should be in 2014. In his DEF CON talk, Bransfield plans to explain how anyone can replicate the war kid collar to create their own Wi-Fi spying cat, a feat that's only become easier in the past months as the collar's Spark Core chip has become easier to program. Bransfield came up with the idea of feline-powered Wi-Fi reconnaissance when someone attending one of his security briefings showed him a GPS collar designed to let people locate their pets by sending a text message. All it needed was a Wi-Fi sniffer, he says. I thought the idea was hilarious, and I decided to make it. His first experiment involved hiding an HTC Wildfire smartphone in the pocket of a dog jacket worn by his co-worker's tabby, Skitsy. Skitsy quickly managed to worm out of the jacket, however, losing Bransfield's gear. It was a disaster, he says. That cat still owes me a phone. Bransfield spent the next months painstakingly creating the War Kitty using Spark's Arduino-compatible open-source hardware, and enlisting Nancy to sew it into a strip of cloth. When he finally tested it on Skitsy, however, he was disappointed to find the cat spent the device's entire battery life sitting on his co-worker's front porch. Coco turned out to be a better spy. Over three hours, he revealed 23 Wi-Fi hotspots, more than a third of which were open to snoops or used crackable WEP instead of the more modern WPA encryption. Bransfield mapped those networks in a program created by an internet collaborator that uses Google Earth's API. The number of vulnerable access points surprised Bransfield. He says that several of the WEP connections were Verizon Fios routers, left with their default settings unchanged. Though he admits his cat stunt was mostly intended to entertain himself, he hopes it might make more users aware of privacy lessons those in the security community have long taken for granted. Cats are more interesting to people than information security, Bransfield says. If people realize that a cat can pick up on their open Wi-Fi hotspot, maybe that's a good thing. The article How to Use Your Cat to Hack Your Neighbor's Wi-Fi was written by Andy Greenberg and originally published on Wired.com on August 8th, 2014. A link to the article itself is in the show notes, and I encourage you to go check it out because the article itself includes a video of Bransfield's program that maps out the Wi-Fi networks using that Google Earth API. It's cool stuff. Now that we've had our fun, we're going to round out this week's show with another piece from Andy Greenberg at Wired. He's a big security reporter over there. Uh, and it's all about a piece of U.S. legislation, cybersecurity legislation, uh, surveillance legislation. These are things that... Um, all of us, at least in the U.S. and probably around the world, as it seems to affect everyone, should be paying attention to. Uh, it's all about the CISA, or CISA, uh, as I'm going to be referring to it throughout the article. Uh, this is CISA Security Bill, an F for security, but an A-plus for spying. This is what Andy Greenberg wrote. When the Senate Intelligence Committee passed the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act by a vote of 14 to 1, 
Committee Chairman Senator Richard Burr argued that it successfully balanced security and privacy. Fifteen new amendments to the bill, he said, were designed to protect internet users' personal information while enabling new ways for companies and federal agencies to coordinate responses to cyber attacks. But critics within the security and privacy communities still have two fundamental problems with the legislation. First, they say the proposed Cybersecurity Act won't actually boost security. And second, the information sharing it describes sounds more than ever like a back channel for surveillance. On Tuesday, the bill's authors released the full updated text of the SISA legislation passed last week, and critics say the changes have done little to assuage their fears about wanton sharing of Americans' private data. In fact, legal analysts say the changes actually widen the back door, leading from private firms to intelligence agencies. It's a complete failure to strengthen the privacy protections of the bill, says Robin Green, a policy lawyer for the Open Technology Institute, which joined a coalition of dozens of nonprofits and cybersecurity experts criticizing the bill in an open letter earlier this month. Quote, none of the privacy-related points we raised in our coalition letter to the committee was effectively addressed. The central concern of that letter was how the same data sharing meant to bolster cybersecurity for companies and the government opens massive surveillance loopholes. The bill, as worded, lets a private company share with the Department of Homeland Security any information construed as a cybersecurity threat, quote, notwithstanding any other provision of law. That means SISA trumps privacy laws like the Electronic Communication Privacy Act of 1986 and the Privacy Act of 1974, which restrict eavesdropping and sharing of users' communications. And once the DHS obtains the information, it would automatically be shared with the NSA, the Department of Defense, including Cyber Command, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. In a statement posted to his website yesterday, Senator Burr wrote that, quote, information sharing is purely voluntary and companies can only share cyber threat information and the government may only use shared data for cybersecurity purposes. But in fact, the bill's data sharing isn't limited to cybersecurity threat indicators, warnings of incoming hacker attacks, which is the central data SISA is meant to disseminate among companies and three-letter agencies. OTI's Green says it also gives companies a mandate to share with the government any data related to imminent terrorist attacks, weapons of mass destruction, or even other information related to violent crimes like robbery and carjacking. The latest update to the bill tacks on yet another kind of information, anything related to impending, quote, serious economic harm. All of those vague terms, Green argues, widen the pipe of data that companies can send to the government, expanding SISA into a surveillance system for the intelligence community and domestic law enforcement. SISA goes far beyond cybersecurity and permits law enforcement to use information it receives for investigations and prosecutions of a wide range of crimes involving any level of physical force, reads the letter of, from the coalition opposing SISA. Quote, the lack of use limitations creates yet another loophole for law enforcement to conduct backdoor searches on Americans, including searches of digital communications that would otherwise require law enforcement to obtain a warrant based on probable cause. This undermines Fourth Amendment protections and constitutional principles. Even when it comes to cybersecurity data sharing, privacy advocates say SISA would give companies a legal loophole to mix users' personal information into the cyber threat indicators they pass on to federal agencies. The bill does have a provision designed to filter personally identifiable information out of that data. But it's far too weak as written, says Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. He points to language in the bill that calls on companies to, quote, assess whether a cyber threat indicator contains any information that the entity knows at the time of sharing to be personal information or of identifying a specific person not directly related to a cybersecurity threat and remove such information. That knows at the time of sharing phrase, Sanchez argues, means that companies can share personal information they haven't yet proven to be unrelated to a cyber threat. And that's especially impractical given SISA's purpose of spreading initial warnings of a possible threat quickly enough to prevent it, often before it's been fully analyzed. 
Take the example of a distributed denial-of-service, or DDoS, attack designed to knock a target website offline with a stream of junk data. Sophisticated DDoS attacks often impersonate legitimate traffic, raising the risk that innocent traffic and identifying IP addresses would be included in data shared with the government. At the time of sharing, it will be very unclear if it's innocent activity, says Sanchez, and there's no obligation to do due diligence to figure out if it's innocent or isn't. The bill's authors have been careful to note that it doesn't compel companies to give any data to the government. A member of Senator Burr's legislative staff repeated in an email to Wired that it merely provides a framework for voluntary data sharing, and added that business groups like the Financial Services Roundtable and the National Cable and Telecommunications Association have already expressed their support for the bill. Bottom line, the bill doesn't give any government agency additional authority to collect information, wrote the spokesperson. Careful companies, of course, could in fact choose to safeguard their users' privacy beyond the requirements of SISA. But Cato's Sanchez argues that many companies seeking SISA's security benefits will take the path of least resistance and share more data rather than less, without comprehensively filtering it of all personal information. The easiest, fastest way to share information is to select all and copy-paste. Every additional filter is an extra effort, he says. There's no incentive to combat the tendency to err on the side of oversharing. For those who value security over privacy, SISA's surveillance compromises might seem acceptable. But questions persist about whether SISA would even do much to improve security. Robert Graham, a security researcher and an early inventor of intrusion prevention systems, says SISA will lead to sharing of more false positives than real threat information. Skilled hackers, he says, know how to evade intrusion prevention systems, intrusion detection systems, firewalls, and antivirus software. Meanwhile, most data alerts from systems shared under SISA will be false alarms. If we had seen the information from the Sony hackers ahead of time, we still wouldn't have been able to pick it out from the other information we were getting, Graham says, in reference to the epic hack of Sony Pictures Entertainment late last year. Quote, The reality is that even if you have the information ahead of time, you really can't pick the needle from the haystack. Graham points to the more informal information sharing that already occurs in the private sector thanks to companies that manage the security large client bases. Companies like IBM and Dell SecureWorks already have massive cybersecurity information sharing systems where they hoover up large quantities of threat information from their customers, Graham wrote in a blog post Wednesday. This rarely allows them to prevent attacks as the SISA bill promises. In other words, we've tried the SISA experiment and we know it doesn't really work. In his statement excoriating SISA last week, Senator Ron Wyden, the only member of the Intelligence Committee to vote against the bill, agreed. He wrote that SISA not only lacks privacy protections, but that, quote, it will have a limited impact on U.S. cybersecurity. But Wyden went further than calling SISA ineffective. Citing its privacy loopholes, he questioned the fundamental intention of the legislation as it's currently written. If information sharing legislation does not include adequate privacy protections, then that's not a cybersecurity bill, he wrote. It's a surveillance bill by another name. The article titled SISA Security Bill, an F for security but an A plus for spying, was written by Andy Greenberg and originally published on Wired.com on March 20th, 2015. A link to this as well as all of the other articles featured in this week's show is available in the show notes. And if you want to go check out this particular article, you can actually read the full text of the size of bill with changes from uh, the amendments highlighted by the Open Technology Institute. Um, so that's available there. Feel free to check that out. It's cool stuff. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of the support that I've been seeing on social media. And thank you to everyone for sharing the show and staying excited and being patient with me and my busy student schedule. Uh, I really do want to keep pushing these things out. So thank you for bearing with me and for supporting the show when it does come out. And speaking of support, uh, this week I am incredibly excited to bring you this huge announcement. This, the podcast you are currently listening to, is now on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows people to contribute to their 
uh, favorite artists and content creators, and I feel that that's a great place to get this off the ground. You can see all the details of what we're trying to do and what some of our goals are over at patreon.com slash this. And no, I couldn't believe that URL was not taken either. It's amazing that we were able to grab that. Uh, that link will be in the show notes. Another announcement is uh, we are on iTunes. It's uh, been a while that we've been on iTunes, but... Um, the podcast is the only place that I can really announce that to you. The best way to find us on iTunes is by searching the podcast section for Eganworks or Eganworks Productions, as that's what the podcast is listed under. Searching for the title of this, even with the little carrot and exclamation point, uh, doesn't really get you much. Mostly it gets you This American Life, which is also a great podcast, but please do subscribe to us. In addition to those two places, you can also support the show by following us all around the web. Obviously, the main place to follow the show is on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash this-podcast. You can find all of the episodes posted there. That's also our main RSS feed and the way we push out to iTunes. So if you want to get at the core of this thing, SoundCloud is what powers it. We're also on Twitter at RedByThis. Our Tumblr can be found at redbythis.tumblr.com. We are now on Instagram. You guessed it, redbythis is our username. We also have a YouTube channel, which is currently empty, but we'll be putting up back episodes of the podcast in video form once I figure out the most uh, interesting and effective way to turn this uh, into a visual thing. That's youtube.com slash redbythis. If you want to follow me, I am at Eganworks on Twitter. I am many things across the web, in fact, but first and foremost, I am Vloganegan on YouTube at youtube.com slash Vloganegan. This is co-produced by Ali McDonough, Griffin Smith, Keith Jackson, Zach Bruin, Kira Smith, and myself, Mike Egan. This is an Eganworks production. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode with more stories reading the web so you don't have to. Take care.